Good afternoon again from SoundBridge, the Learning Center at Benaroya Hall here in Seattle. I'm Dave Beck, afternoon host at listener-supported Classical King FM Seattle at 98.1. I'm a cellist, longtime Seattle Chamber Music Society enthusiast and host for this series of Classical Conversations, programs with Seattle Chamber Music Society artists available via podcasts produced by SCMS and Classical King FM. We're broadcasting all six of this winter's festival concerts coming to you from the Nordstrom Recital Hall at Ben Royal Hall in Seattle. My guest today, William Wolfram, carries the legacy of Franz Liszt forward, not only as a dedicated interpreter of Liszt's music, but as an artist who shares Liszt's deep passion for moving music forward, along with his extensive recordings of rarely heard and performed Liszt repertory on the Noxos label, William Wolfram champions the work of living contemporary composers like Aaron J. Kernis, Paul Chihara, Kenneth Frizzell, and many others. A passion for composition is part of Bill Wolfram's musical journey, and his success in competition is a big part of his story as well. He took prizes early in his career at the uh, Capel and Namburg and Tchaikovsky competitions, and he's the focus of a full chapter in music. Uh, scholar Joseph Horowitz's book. It's called The Ivory Trade, Music and the Business of Music at the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition. So that will be a rich source of uh, conversation in this next hour. Bill solos regularly with the great American orchestras, performs as recitalist and soloist on many continents. Let's give a warm welcome to SCMS artist, William Wolfram. It's very nice to have you back in Seattle. It's always great to be in Seattle. Your work with the society goes back a ways. It does. Yeah. Tell me about how you got started. Probably an invitation from Toby Sachs came along. Yeah. And ironically, it's, it, I was, um, well, something happened that usually doesn't in, in the, uh, the way that the classical music world works, in my experience. And that was that I did get a call from Toby. I'd heard about this festival. Uh, from many people, but mostly from Beyonce, who I uh, have played with and been a friend to and musical comrade for a long time. And um, at some point, Toby called me and asked me if I could come, and I couldn't. The dates conflicted with something that I already had, which really annoyed me because I found it's not all of the time, as it wasn't in this case, but so often when you miss that first opportunity, it just doesn't come around again mm. somehow. But it did. And um, she called again. I honestly don't remember whether it was the next year or the year after that. I don't remember. But I was able to do it. And I remember thinking, oh, that's fantastic. I, you know, I, I, beat, the, I beat the curse. <laughs> so that's, uh, and that was a long time ago. I'm really bad with estimating years, but that was a, uh, quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. How does the atmosphere and, and spirit of the festival continue to bring you back? It's truly, it's a great festival on, on so many different levels. I mean, the most obvious is the artistic level. The, 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 the personnel, the players are fabulous. Uh, the, the camaraderie and the family feel has always been a major element of what makes this festival so successful, I think. Um, there's always been, on nights and days of rehearsals, a chef 
a wonderful chef who cooks fantastic meals for us, and we all hang out and eat these wonderful meals. I th that's a huge thing. It, 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 no, it really is, though, because it, 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 it for, it's not just that the food tastes so good. Um, in a way, it has nothing to do with that, ironically. It's, it's a, f a family feel. It's, it's sports teams, a lot of the, they do this on the road. They mandate team meals where people are not eating by themselves. It forges a, a camaraderie. And um, I've always had such fun here, um, music and, and, and musically and personally. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful, warm, place and also it's interesting because I mean again I always I always talk truthfully sometimes maybe too truthfully but um, you know musicians in general you know we all have big egos and it's always wonderful when you have a, a gathering of musicians where all those big egos work together and everyone's going rooting for each other and that is that has been the case probably 99.8 percent of the time because <laughs> it's, it's easy to get into a situation where it's almost like a competition, where, you know, like a piano competition, where you're all trying to kill each other, really. Um, I didn't say that. I just, I've, I've heard that, though. You're doing a great job of teasing our later conversation. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> but so on, the, on an artistic level and a, um, on a human level, this... this um, this festival has just been a huge success. Speaking of big egos, let's talk about Franz Liszt. <laughs> <laughs> Though I, I hope in the course of this conversation we'll learn that the, the womanizing and the egos and the flamboyance is uh, a small part of the story. This, right. is, this is an extraordinary, exactly. extraordinary right. uh, performer and contributor to the art of the piano. And we can start right away by these... Um, recordings you've done of a set of pieces, I think in translations, studies in 12 exercises. And my understanding is Liszt wrote this when he was about 15 years old. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the transcendental age. Liszt wrote so much music, and he also wrote so many versions of that music. Uh, the, the famous transcendental etudes he wrote, I think, three times. And this, this is the first uh, incarnation of them. And they're very interesting, and they, they they actually sound deceptively easy. The, the The version that we know, they're beastly difficult. And then he wrote a version that was even more difficult, that are almost never played. Um, so this is the simple version, and it's actually somewhat, in a vein, in an ego-related way, it's a little annoying because they are the simpler, but they sound much simpler than they are, and they're actually really difficult. Well, let's we'll listen to uh, it's just about a minute long. So let's listen to one of these. I think the marking here is Allegro Grazioso. It's uh, William Wolfe from playing these uh, this early list. Thank you. 
Beautiful. Thank you for that. What What do you think he was looking to advance or explore at that young age in writing this set? This whole set? Probably just, you know, probably thinking of the Chopin etudes and uh, the technical necessities in playing piano uh, in a virtuosic way and possibly non-virtuosic. This, uh, it's been a while, and I'm also really bad, ironically, about listening to my own recordings. Hmm. I very often listen to them once or not. There are recordings I have that I haven't listened to. Um, this, I believe, is the um, uh, predecessor of the, the, the huge killer Mazeppas. Uh, what this becomes is outrageous. This this is a very elegant little internalized version of this huge, you know, Sturm und Drang, killer, impossible piece. Mm -hmm. What is it about this time? Because he he famously played for Beethoven and Schubert, and he was a student of um, Carl Czerny, who was Beethoven's most famous pupil. Um, what do you take away from what he was doing just in his youth? Oh, I mean, he List List was just one of the titanic creative artists ever, and he just does not he does not get the credit. Uh, though it's funny, there are many people who are on board with this, as you are. I remember years ago, years ago, someone who didn't start, but he really helped the whole push towards, you know, like Bush's, uh, uh, that List is not just a uh, glitzy, virtuosic writer and, and performer, was Brendel. Mm -hmm. Alfred Brendel had a series of concerts. Um, it was a great idea. He played a bunch of recitals. It was always Bach, Beethoven, and Liszt. And somehow those composers somehow worked together almost no matter what you put together. But he really helped by also by playing some of the uh, fascinating compositions that Liszt wrote that were not all the virtuosic works. But in, in Liszt's youth, he, I don't know whether this story is apocryphal or not, but I mean, I guess even if it's somewhat apocryphal, it's still amazing. I mean, he went on such a, a regimen to make himself the super virtuoso when he set his mind to doing that. He supposedly practiced technique four hours a day. So I guess if that's exaggerated, it's still pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there was, I mean, it seems to me what the bits and pieces I come across, there was, there was often a very pragmatic um, impetus to what he did. His father died when he was 16 years old. Right. And, and he had to make a living. He had to go out and teach. And, and, and boy, did he. Right. <laughs> Because I think these, uh, you know, you're speculating what are, what are these pieces about? I, I, you know, they're they're amazing exercises for a 15, 16 year old. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He list list was. I, I think his father was taking him around, and, and uh, now they'd say exploiting him. Probably he was playing tons of concerts, and his father dies, and he's in Paris, I think, right? And he he's he's, he's shunted off to a relatives, mm -hmm. and and I think that I've, I've read all this, I, I, I jumble the details sometimes, but I believe this is where he started his deep and lifelong connection to religion, because he would go to uh, churches uh, and sort of just lay down by himself and or just sit and commune. And uh, it's, it's fa that's another fascinating element of this guy's life, because part of it is that he's uh, you know, one of the original rock stars and, and cultivated like Paganini, this whole cult of personality. 
and was a big, you know, Hollywood before there was a Hollywood, you know, uh, very good looking uh, womanizer of sorts too. He was doing all this and yet he was really quite a religious person. Stopped doing this. You know, when I was younger, I didn't know this. I thought he was like, the, I thought he was the performing a million concerts a year until his death and it's not true at all. He stopped quite early and then was frustrated about being typecast, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. You mentioned him taking the religious orders later in his life. And mm -hmm. I, um, I don't have, I don't believe you've, you've recorded this, at least not yet, but you're doing the Dante uh, yeah. sonata here. Right. And, and that speaks to a lot of things. One, it's, it's something that he revised and revised and it right. comes into the form you're playing. But in that music, you get that sense of, of the, the sacred and profane. This, right. you know, right. this, this wildly contrasting life that right. he, he lived. Yeah, the Dante, that I'll play tonight in the pre-concert recital is, is, is just the most perfect subject matter for Liszt to write about. He was obsessed, I don't know. He was extremely interested in the, the redemption and hell, and this was the perfect, uh, hearing this lecture on Inferno and writing this piece is so up Liszt's alley, it was perfect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, are, there, are there other specific moments in that music that we can be listening for tonight that that, that really excites you or, or speak to that idea of of how he takes you <laughs> from yes. from heaven to hell and back yes but i'm going to keep it a secret <laughs> i could tell you but i'd i'd have to <laughs> kill <might>. yeah <laughs> okay i don't so yeah. we don't want to go there okay yeah. it's fair enough i've got a i've got a long list of questions for you so <laughs> well so this is this uh, wagner we're about to play here um uh, some from uh, Lohengrin. This is volume 36 of this Noxos project that's going through the, mm -hmm. the, the list uh, cycle. Um, how did you get on board and why was, why was that so interesting to you to... Um, I mean, I guess you've, you've kind of spoken to it already in terms of like there's just stuff out there that's fascinating and we don't hear. Yeah, I mean... Um... You know, I honestly don't remember how I got on board with that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really don't. But, um, but I, there's, there's lots of... Uh, so many of the things that I have recorded for their list project is repertoire that pianists don't know, people don't know, is tra opera transcriptions. And some of these were... Opera transcriptions, especially the Italian operas, were hugely instrumental in lists the apex of his performing career. He was giving recitals in Paris where he was playing these transcriptions. I think the Donizetti's were, uh, had come out. This is such a great story and it's kind of sad because you think, geez, this wouldn't happen nowadays. He was giving a recital, in, a set of recitals in Paris, some more traditional like Beethoven and Schubert, and then he would do all his transcriptions. And in, in they did, I guess they did mark, targeted marketing then too. And he, the release of the manuscripts of his Donizetti transcriptions came out right before the recital. There were 500 copies. They were all bought up like in one day. Isn't that great? It makes me sad, too. It's like, that, that wouldn't happen now. Um, so these are not played that much anymore, the, list, the, 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 the tra opera transcriptions. And I adore them. They are among my favorites. And part of it is that my grandmother, who was my first 
piano teacher, and when I started composition, I was composition right. teacher. Um, she, and we have a really old family. You cannot believe. My grandmother was born in the late 1800s. The distance between births in my family is nuts, as you can tell. So she played piano in such a different fashion. And I, I, that stayed with me. In Nor it's, it's almost, it's antithetical to the way people play now. It's, it's totally opposite. But she used to play this kind of repertoire, operatic transcriptions. They, also, the repertoire was different then. It wasn't as much in the classics. It was more romantics and transcriptions. And uh, so I grew up hearing her do this kind of stuff. So for me to do this stuff, it was just fantastic. I, I want to make one quick observation here. And then I have both the, uh, the uh, Lohengrin paraphrase and uh, the Lucia by Donizetti. So okay. we'll hear a little bit of each. But you, know, you mentioned that Liszt had, had a kind of two-pronged, he had his traditional recitals, and then he was doing this, this new music. And, and as we taped this, last night in Benaroya Hall, in the recital hall, here's the Seattle Chamber Music Society, doing a fairly traditional program and down the hall the symphony is playing with all these local Pacific Northwest rock and roll bands right and having new you know new arrangements and created band, yes and and pieces by young contemporary composers based right. on these sounds right you know the more things change the more they stay the same now exactly now um, in fairness though the um, the chamber society does they have a commissioning club and they do lots of new oh absolutely. They, they do stuff but you know yeah yeah, so that's not no. The, 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 and we'll we'll talk about this. The, and we've had those composers on this series. Right, but this right. idea that that you know you 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 figure out how to connect to what's right in the culture, and that's that's a, the, that's a that's source the, of inspiration of moving things forward. That's the battle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here from speaking of hit tunes, let's try this one. A, a list transcription of some of Wagner's music. intrigued by what you said about your grandmother. I mean, did she, did she play repertory like that? You said there was, she had a style that yeah. caught your ear. Um, 
Yes, I mean, there are old, there are things that pianists, all musicians used to do, stylistic things that I've inherited. And I actually still do a modified version of this. It used to get me in huge trouble in competitions because it was something years ago. Now people almost don't even know about it. But it was something that used to be, piano teachers almost wanted to eradicate this. Uh, I, I, can even, I can just name some technical things. One was uh, doubling octaves when you want a more, it's, it basic, it's based around freedom. Freedom and illusion. Um, we're in a more literal age now. Um, if, you, if you're playing something and you, you want a deeper sound, you, you play the same note but an octave lower. It's the breaking of octaves, it's a timing thing. Um, there were many things, I, I think I should stay general, things in the old days, Horowitz certainly did all this stuff. Um, it created, it's almost a way that a pianist could do, to, could try to imitate some of the things that a string player could do and a singer can, can do. And it's the, it's, it was very clever and y you wouldn't be aware of it. I honestly still do some of these things, but it's really dying out. Um, and as I said, there were people at least years ago, mostly pedagogues, who would you know fly into a rage if they heard this. It was like they were trying to stamp out this kind of sedition. <laughs> um, I think I think in a modified way, it's one of the some of these techniques are incredibly brilliant tools, incredibly brilliant. Mm -hmm. Here's this uh, Donizetti transcription. Two operas from Don uh, Donizetti, Lucia di Lammermoor and Parasina, are mm -hmm. woven into this transcription. So here's more from William uh, Wolfram. We're speaking about uh, Liszt's multi-faceted interests, it, it, um, and it's, it's extraordinary that he knew Balzac and Heine yeah, and yeah. Uh, Delacroix. So you know his artistic friendships and associations yeah. were really deep and it was rich. A good, it was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about. Um, I, I want to unpack this whole interesting composition of yours a little bit because it's. 
It's, it's significant. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, um, I think you told me that it was, the, it was the thing that kind of caught on for you yeah. first, before even, you know, piano. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, I was, how do I encapsulate this? What's really interesting is that I showed, I'm just, I feel, I see the word psychology and I, I'm going to go in that direction. <laughs> I showed uh, a little interest in playing the piano when I was five years old. Uh, but honestly, as a kid, I had no real desire to get into what was then thrust upon me by my parents and grandmother, which is, you know, extensive, intensive musical training. I had, that's not what I wanted. Um, but composition was the main thing. It just morphed into that, and she taught me composition. I had composition lessons every week, piano lessons every two weeks as a way to engender improvisation. So piano was really on the side. Um, and I didn't like it, um, merely because it kept me... Also, we lived uh, way up in a hill. You know, we were away from it, isolated. And it kept me away from having friends and everything. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the perfect childhood, uh, having fun, etc. But um, until I was about 15 or 16, composition was the major thrust of my musical training. And then piano started to completely supersede it and has ever since. Was your grandmother and your parents, were they professionals, musicians, or what was their... My grandmother was a pianist, and... I don't even think she was really professional. I mean, she, she, she was until she got married, and that sounds funny now, but these were, you know, she was born in the late 1800s. And that, you know, I know Clara Schumann didn't, but I, she was not a Clara Schumann. So she, when she married, she stopped. Um, my mother was taught piano, but was not really a good pianist. My father, interestingly, is about as unmusical a person as would ever exist. He hardly ever listened to music, had no real interest. Um, he had, he liked two songs, one by Nat King Cole. I love Nat King Cole. I don't even remember what it was. Ramblin' Rose. And the other one was, which is a great, great song that I still listen to, Bobby Darren, Mac the Knife. That's it. It's, so his taste, I, I, agree with the, I agree with the selections. But he never would listen to music for fun, so unmusical. Mm -hmm. And w what then shifted piano into overdrive? I don't know. I mean, I, I just, it's hard to figure out what, I guess, it, I think it could, I could make up something, you know, that sounds very deep, but I have a feeling, I have a feeling that it was just more fun. It's a very lonely thing as a kid to be writing. It's more fun to play the piano. I have a feeling that that's what got me. Um, was that going uh, to, to the lessons and working with the teacher, or was it chamber music at, at, at that point? Or? No chamber music, no. It yeah. was all solo and extensive technical I uh, study, I improvised constantly, which I loved. It was this solitary writing of music. I learned forms, I learned fugues. I even had, I got admission to a private school if I wrote the music to a play about ancient Egypt, essentially, and then directed it 
which was a joke because I, at that time, you know, as much of a big mouth as I am now, I was exactly the opposite as a kid. I was painfully shy. So this was agony for me to direct. Um, I mean, I had lots of help, of course, but yeah, so I, I was writing all this stuff, but it was a, it's a lonely thing. It's not as much fun as improvising and you know, flying your, you know, having your fingers fly around the keys. I'm sure that's what it was, honestly. Tell me about you know, what you know or, or what impresses you or your, uh, about the role of improvisation in, in Liszt's work. Because as we listen, listen to these, they're, they're so imaginative and, um, and you know, I don't know how much he wrote down what, what, yeah. what they are. Or, or if, it, if we were to see a performance of these pieces that we're playing, they're nothing like what, you know, what we're hearing. I, I think you, you hit on it. I mean, he, he clearly improvisation's a huge part of his output. And I, I agree, I don't know how many, how much, there, 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 there's things in his, especially these transcriptions where you really wonder if sections were transcribed by you know people by, by himself or by rep, repetition, you know he played he played recitals, and go from town to town to town to town. He probably improvised the first time, then he probably builds on it, then he writes it down. So because because he's repeated it so many times, I'm theorizing, but this is totally logical as to how it would happen. But improvisation obviously was a huge part of the way he did things and how he would shift and why there's so much confusion with certain. Uh, certain compositions of his. It actually causes a problem. It's caused a problem with Noxos because there are, in trying to record everything of Liszt, there are little fragments that he has, and then it's a standalone fragment. Then he takes that standalone fragment and actually puts it verbatim into another whole <laughs> thing. So you've already recorded it. So from their point of view, they have, a, they have trouble figuring this out. They've wow. already recorded it, but now it's in another piece with a, another name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you do? You've got to record it again. Then it's been twice. So, yeah. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years, and again, to go back to the d discussion of popular music, then you have these recordings that have every possible take and outtake of, of, of Bob Dylan or whoever it is. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like they were kind of dealing with this with, yeah. with Liszt as well. Supposedly Liszt had years at the end of his life where he could have been recorded, but he didn't play. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was that. It was that. We forget how late he was around. Here's uh, Tristan and uh, Isolde, a transcription by Liszt and William Wolfram playing once again.
about Liszt's championing of Wagner, though apparently the first time Wagner came calling, uh, Liszt was very dismissive. <laughs> really? Who is, oh, who is this fellow? Uh, but, I mean, one, one point I wanted to make, and we were talking about this on the phone, is that, you know, you look at um, works of the, of the mid to late 19th century, whether they be by you know, Borodin or, or Grieg or Saint-Saëns, uh, Wagner, of course, but Liszt's fingerprints are, are always there somehow. He, yeah. he, either as you know, championing the, the pieces, right. conducting, encouraging. Right. Um, again, I think that's something people don't maybe appreciate as oh, much. Oh, totally. And also Wagner just took, and, and Liszt knew it. I don't think it was a big deal. I mean, they, became, they were in-laws after a while. <laughs> Seriously. Um, you know, Liszt's daughter married Wagner. And, um, you know, Valkyrie has huge sections that are from Orpheus, the tone poem. The thing that gets me, and in fact, uh, I was asked this question on the Juilliard entrance exam. This is a little bit of an oversimplification, but Wagner's very often given the credit, and it is an oversimplification for like starting, for really planting the official seed that would lead to the, the, the downfall of tonality. I mean, it is an oversimplification, but like the Tristan chord, now I really wish I could play it, but I can't. <laughs> it's the chord that the opera starts, starts on with three notes, and then this famous chord. And the chord is, is nebulous. It's sort of you don't know in hearing it, and the, and, and the orchestra stops and it sustains it. But that chord doesn't lead you into an obvious area. area. So it makes sense that you know, this is where tonality is starting to unravel in its certainty. But Liszt wrote it first in a song. Hmm. The song started with the chord. Dum, da, dee, da. So Wagner wrote, added the first couple of notes. He stole it. So Juilliard exam, 100,000 years ago, entrance exam, they, they say, who wrote the Tristan chord? Which was kind of an idiotic question, number one. But uh, So I wrote Liszt, and they marked it wrong. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm still agitated about it. <laughs> It's so interesting. We're talking about improvising and uh, and um, being a, a pianist composer, the tradition of the pianist composer, yeah. which uh, this is maybe a too elaborate segue, though, into this conversation about this chapter in a book that was mm. written for you. Because Joseph uh, Horowitz, um, a very uh, distinguished and sometimes controversial oh, uh, yeah. American musical <laughs> scholar, wrote this book called The Ivory Trade, but Joe says, as he looks at the, what, what he calls the post-classical world, and he's one of these people that just wants to ban the use of the word classical music, which can make a good case for that, but he says that you know, the, the future, in terms of compelling uh, creation of music, will involve people who improvise, compose, and, and perform. Um, and anyway, he's, he's been developing that. That's a, that's a theme that, that runs through right. all of his books. Yeah. So he wrote about you at the 1989 Van Cliburn um, mm -hmm. competition. Um, tell me a little bit about what that competition was like for you. You, know, you have these great successes at, at Tchaikovsky and Capel and, and others. Um, uh, how, how was Van Cliburn in, in comparison? Uh, this, this, this particular one was nuts. We, um, had something kind of new then and wild. It was videotaped pre-auditions. That sounds, but this was a while ago. So we all, everybody around the world does them. And um, we're, 
you're accepted or rejected based on the video. I'm accepted. Um, I start getting calls from huge managers in New York, mysteriously. And what had happened was that somehow these managers and others were privy to the videotaping round. So they had in their mind the belief that there were four of us who were going to be, you know, vying for the prize. And I then was called by, and I was kind of at the top of the list, um, which, was, which was a really gutsy call because, I, because of the fact that I do a lot. I mean, there are various reasons why, in a way, I'm, you know, it's always a miracle if I do well in competitions because you sort of have to follow the rules. And, and you know, when you, when, you do, when, you, when you hint at anything from the 1800s, you're not following the rules. So it was a bad, it was a stupid call to think that I might have won. But it, it, it was judged in some circles that I would. And then the Dallas Morning News contacts me and said, we want to uh, follow around one competitor the entire time. You know, when you're playing, when you're in the bathroom, we're there. <laughs> and uh, record your inner feelings. So I said, great. OK, so it happened. So all four of us play in the first round, and all four of us are eliminated. <laughs> That's not according to script. No. No, so, so the paper, to its credit, because suddenly they were, you know, oh my God, you know, we were going to write a story about the winner, and now we've got the loser. <laughs> so they kept, they, they kept it all the way through, and they kept the story, and everything was fascinating. But um, I veered so much off, off course. Oh, you're, I, I forgot what the original, it was just what was the competition like. So this is what Joe got uh, fixated on. And Joe wrote, complained, and interviewed enough people so that the entire, the way the Clyburn was run was changed because of his book. But of course, they didn't like him for it. Um, they, one of the reasons that Joe believed that I was out was that I was asked for some very, how do I put it? I mean, I, I was asked for repertoire that was like out of context, you know, the, the one fugue, you know, the second page here. In other words, something that never got your, never got an evocative emotional response started. It was sort of real arcane kind of intellectual stuff and all out of context so that it couldn't possibly create any kind of a good impression, really. Uh, I mean, I, I'm really badly paraphrasing him, but he thought the choices that I was asked for, and a lot of people did, thought it was, it was outrageous. Because so often when judges are asking for things, they might ask for something intellectual, intellectual bent, and, but then they want to hear some facility, and they, you know, it's a little bit of a well-rounded thing. And they didn't do that with me. It was almost like I was, um, as a public speaker, I was just asked for 30 minutes to recite you know, the code of uh, some, uh, in a law book for 30 minutes, and they said, thank you, goodbye. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to make an analogy. Um, he complained wildly about that and um, created a lot of waves. And it was funny because, ironically, um, I, I, a lot of people down there supported me enormously, and I got some concerts from it because they felt bad for me. And Joe, there was a backlash because I now was, they were really annoyed at him. Because he really digs, and he interviews, and he gets people to say things. He's very intelligent, and he doesn't hold back. So then I got associated with him, 
in a way. And people, all, some of the people who were saying, gee, we really feel bad, we want to try to you know, make it up to you somehow, uh, you know, they were starting to view me, I thought, as you know, part of the trouble. Uh-huh. So the whole the whole thing was out of it was ridiculous, you know. Just so Joe Horowitz, you know, he 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 fulfills such an interesting role because he's right. this scholar and he writes these tomes of yes. books on every subject. But then he's also a concert producer, so it's sort of like right. he wants to, um, you know, w- walk the walk and, and not just you know talk right. the talk. I mean, so he so then he produces a concert with you. What what, what was that all about? That also was was a double edged sword. He had, the entire book was, you know, he had followed me with other competitions too and interviewed and sort of cross-examined the judges as to, you know, like, what's, what's the problem? What, why didn't he win? But I wasn't the only one. There were other ones. There were other pianists that he thought, his, his point was that competitions don't reward, like, the best players very often. So he had a number of us that he thought comp, the competition system worked against so he put us on in a, uh, there's a wonderful concert hall. It's small, but it's one of the nicest in New York, the, the Y, the, the, the 92nd Street Y. And um, he put us on, but it was marketed in a way which made sense, but it was essentially, now I'll, I'll, you know, I'll overdo it, but you get the point. It was like, come here, these abject losers. <laughs> They're really... <laughs> They're really pretty good. <laughs> now I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. We had to be—we couldn't be marketed as competition winners. We had to be marketed as exactly the opposite. That you know, the competition had stomped us out as rejects, but it was all wrong. So was, that was interesting. By the way, I don't want to forget to say that I've done some stuff recently with Joe. I mean, his—this is a complete segue, but it's incredible, and I might do some more. There's there's an incredible trombone player named David Taylor. I don't know if you know, he's one of a kind. When he was younger, he played, he's older, he played in Ellington's band and Stokowski's orchestra. (laughs) And this is what he's all about. But Joe has a series called Schubert Uncorked, and it's an idea. I've done this with Dave. He's, He's a virtuoso but a bizarre trumpet, uh, trombone player who's almost like, in a way, like a Gideon Kramer. He plays in a different way as a technique that just comes from a different place. So he's actually done improvisations on Schubert songs, Doppelganger, uh, and, and et cetera. And I think they're incredible. I've, honestly, people have heard it, and they think it's insanity or a travesty, but a lot of people really love it. It's very progressive. It's called Schubert Uncorked, and it's all. This is Joe's thinking. It's mm-hmm. like it's like improv yeah. on the spot, based on Schubert songs. Instead of a singer, trombone and piano. Uh, it's. I think it's great. Yeah. Actually, he's. And this is one of the points I'm sure I. I've read many of his books, but I have not read Ivory Trade. I'm looking forward to to going back and seeing that because, you know, one of the things he says is, reflects what you said earlier in the hour about like, listening to things that your grandmother did or, mm. or things that you were, were bringing back. I remember being in classes with Joe Horowitz and he played these, you know, at first hearing you, it's, it's Beethoven symphonies conducted by Stokowski in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what is he doing? <laughs> what is he having this orchestra do? But, but, but Joe loves that yeah, kind of sort of stuff. That kind of, yeah. 
that sort of um, interpretive tradition that's been lost, or it's right. time to bring it back. Yeah, and... no, and I, I, you know, it's funny. Joe and I don't really always agree on performers, but we agree in in uh, about the necessity to. Uh, we're just living in a very tight literal age, um, stiff. I could use a nastier word, but I I'm so polite I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well. We need to, to let you go and prepare for performances tonight, but what a, what a treat to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, I promise next time when we have you come, we're going to put a, we're gonna mic up. <laughs> so, but you're, um, it's, it's wonderful to hear um, your recordings. You should listen to them sometime. They're pretty, they're pretty good. You know, I hate to admit this. The one, <laughs> one part, the Tristan, I completely remember, but the one before it, I actually barely remember because I learned some of these I've you know, put into my recital programs, but some of them I never played again. And they're years, they're years old, and I barely recognize it. <laughs> well, let's uh, give William Wolf from the line. So that brings our latest podcast, Classical Conversations from the Seattle Chamber Music Society and Classical King FM, to a close. The Winter Festival concerts continue. The final performance tonight at 7.30 will be uh, right here in Nordstrom Recital Hall, broadcast live on Classical King FM. We've brought you all of this year's Winter Festival concerts. We'll do the same this coming summer. James Ennis, the Artistic Director for Seattle Chamber Music Society. Connie Cooper, Executive Director. Our engineer for these podcasts and the King FM broadcasts, Bill Levy. The programs are produced by me and Seattle Chamber Music Society. Director of Education, Programs and Operations, Jeremy Jolly. I'm Dave Beck from Listener Supported Classical King FM 98.1. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll see you this summer. Have a great day. <laughs>